Hello, Duke. <laughs> it is really an honor to be here today. Um, the last, over the last year, I've been to Australia about three times. And in that time, I've been really impressed with a practice that they do, in fact, really uh, convicted. Um, they won, the Aboriginal people won something that we still, the Native people in the United States still do not have. Um, recently, they won the right to anywhere there is a public gathering, whether it is government or business or church, anywhere, by law, they have to acknowledge the first peoples of the land. That's a big deal. And we don't even do that here. So I was convicted when I was there that wherever I speak, I will now do that. So I want to begin our time today by acknowledging the first people of Durham. I'd like to acknowledge and honor the Eno people and the Okanochi uh, band of the Saponi Nation. We thank you for stewarding this land for thousands of years before anyone discovered it. We thank you for the ways that your love and care for the land connected you to God, to each other, and to those who came so that you welcomed. We bless your elders, past, present, and emerging. Amen. My own ancestors were enslaved, actually. Um, in South Carolina, some in North Carolina were actually free here in North Carolina, up at least, at least um, by 1794. And then also, especially in Virginia, they reached back all the way to the 1680s in Virginia and Maryland. Leah Ballard is one of the family that she is the furthest back that we can go where we know where she was and she was in uh, in Camden, South Carolina. Leah was enslaved there. She had, we believe, 17 children, could have been many more than that. Her, one of her daughter's names was Martha. Martha bore two children, Annie and Elizabeth. She died in childbirth giving birth to Elizabeth, my great-grandmother. Martha, her child Annie, grew up to about 21 years old. At 21 years old, she was told to go out and fetch firewood deep in the woods where they lived. She was followed out into the woods by her uncle in the middle of a horrendous rainstorm that actually now shows up on the annals of history because it was one of the worst rainstorms in all of South Carolina's history. The floodwaters rose up to 22 inches in all across the state. Her uncle raped her in the woods, left her to die. I imagine now what it felt like for her to drag herself back to the house Leah, for Leah to face the reality that one of her sons did this to her granddaughter. That son was banished from the family. Nine months later, Annie gave birth to a little boy and died in childbirth. So now Elizabeth has never known her mother, never knew her father because he was a Jewish man and they were not allowed to be in the same household. And now her daughter, her sister is dead. 
Leah named that little boy that Annie gave birth to, Snake. Snake did not live more than a decade because he doesn't show up in any census after that. Elizabeth fell in love with a man named Charles Jenkins. Charles Jenkins was a railroad man. That railroad man came through town in Camden, South Carolina and gave Elizabeth hope. And they bore three children, one of whom is my grandmother, Willa. Charles died in a train accident, they say. But it was also at the height of the Jim Crow terror in the South. Now, left with no one, Leah passed, never having known her mother, her sister gone, her husband gone. Elizabeth made a decision to try to strive for a better life. And like many immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers, Elizabeth joined the Great Migration, fleeing the terror of the South, and went north to D.C. and then to Philadelphia. And she only took one child with her out of the three, the lightest child, the one who could pass for white. And that was not my grandmother. Something in me believes that Elizabeth knew something about souls clinging to God. Elizabeth knew something about that longing for God. It's important to understand the context of our Old Testament text today. If we understand the context of 63, Psalm 63, 1 through 8, what we will understand is that it does not happen at Starbucks. It happens in the midst of terror. It happens in the midst of a true wilderness experience in David's life. You see, I believe that this moment in David's life is when he is humbled beyond, beyond, and broken by the generational pathologies that have been passed down from him to his sons. You see, only a few chapters ago in 2 Samuel 11, you see David raped Bathsheba. And yes, I say rape, it was not an affair. What woman could say no to a king? And then you have Amnon, his son, rapes his daughter. And then Absalom kills Amnon. And then to get back at his father, Absalom rapes all of David's concubines. And by the way, hashtag concubines, hello somebody. We are so far from naked and unashamed and clinging to each other, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, by the time we get to this text. And David was hunted down by his own son, and they went to war. And 20,000 Israelites lost their lives in that day, including Absalom, David's son. So where does David's wailing come from in this text? 
I believe in this wilderness moment, the cost of his own impetus to dominate the image of God in women and foes and other nations, his desire to build empire, the cost is being clarified here. It cost him everything. Why, why is he still paying cost for dominating Bathsheba all those years ago? Because to dominate the image of God in any human being is to declare war against God. The Salem of God represents where God rules when we crush it we go to war with God. And in this wilderness moment, David's soul thirsts for God. In this wilderness moment, David clung to God deep in his bones. He knew it wasn't supposed to be this way. He knew Bathsheba was made in the Genesis 1, 26, Salem image of God. And Tamar was made in the image of God. And his multiple wives and concubines, every single one was made in the image of God, called and created by God to exercise Radah, dominion in the world, to steward the world, to cultivate the world. And in this wilderness moment, David knew he taught his sons to dominate, not to steward, not to protect, not to cultivate, not to serve. He taught his sons to war for supremacy with God, not to humble themselves. And as I read this story, I see a deep humility entering David that feels transcendent. You see, there's another word in that Genesis 1 text that I'm mentioning. It's the word demuth. It's the word likeness. We are made in the likeness of God. But you see, that word likeness, it's meant to distinguish us from God so that we know we are not God. We are like God, but we are not God. And I think that in this text, we see, we see David places himself, himself in God's hands, saying whatever God does, it will be good. Even as he knows his son is chasing him down. And then, as he is gearing up to go to war with Absalom's army to win back his kingdom, David tells his men, don't kill Absalom. That's what it looks like to release control. And to Annie... and Leah, and Elizabeth, and Martha, and to Sojourner Truth, and Mabel Lee, and Fannie Lou Hamer, we say cling to God as you muster the faith and the courage and the trust in God to rise into the full Salem of God that you were created to walk in 
to exercise Radha in the world. What will it look like for our souls now, today, to cling to God? Perhaps in our conversations of race and gender and class and history and systems and cost, we can bring ourselves to come face to face with God. Perhaps then, when we look around at our broken worlds and our national wilderness moment, we can ask God what it will take to repair what our impetus to exercise domination rather than dominion has broken in the world. And perhaps then we will be willing to join hands with God and each other and say to God, whatever you must do to heal what our impetus to dominate in the world has done and has broken, let it be. For we know it will be well with our souls. Amen. <laughs>